listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you for spending some time with us this hour. It is Monday. It is bright and sunny and very cold, although the extreme cold weather alert has now been terminated by the City of Toronto. wonder how you survived the snowmageddon over the weekend. I, I think for a lot of us watching what was happening in Newfoundland and then looking at the forecast, you know, expecting 10 to 15 centimeters here, thinking I, we're, we're okay. We'll be we're just fine. Thank you. Uh, and uh, you may have heard that this is Blue Monday, which is not a real thing. So I'm going to debunk that later on in the program. It's just not, it's not a thing. Can we just stop with that? I'll tell you what is a real thing, though, today. It is actually National Cheese Lover's Day. Cheese. Cheese Lover's Day. And, and this is a real thing. January 20th, 20th is National Cheese Lover's Day. Did you know, according to the National Day Calendar website, there are 18 different cheese-specific days. There's National String Cheese Day. There's National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day. But today is National Cheese Lover's Day. Cheese. So enjoy that. Let's begin with what's going on around the city, and uh, that is strikes. And elementary school teachers are out on the picket lines, and if you have kids in the TDSB or in York Region, they are out of school and Probably wandering around wondering, you know, what is it that you're going to do for them today? You know, you're probably maybe dropping them off at a friend's place. Maybe you're taking them to the science center. More details on that, but I want to begin with this. And this is a problem for Doug Ford and the government. Doug Ford likes to say again and again about how great the economy is. And that sort of plays into his critics' hands when he says, well, the economy's booming and everything's going great and numbers are good, GDP's good, employment is good. And then you say, well, wait a second, how is it that you say all of that? And at the same time, the cupboard is bare when it comes to any kind of wage increase for teachers above 1%, which is the legislated maximum that the government will allow, just 1% raise. And as you know, the teachers want more than that. So listen to this. This is Doug Ford speaking this morning at the Rural Ontario Municipal Association. And I ask you, is this the right tone on the very day that we have a walkout from elementary teachers in portions of the province? Is this the right tone to be setting? I'm proud to announce today, and we have a lot of announcements. We're giving a ton of money away. I feel like Santa Claus here. Tons of money, tons of funds. That is Doug Ford this morning at the Rural Ontario Municipal Association talking about all of the money that he's investing in rural Ontario. Now, the two things don't necessarily line up in terms of, you know, investments for, you know, broadband. That's one of the things he talked about today. And, you know, money for public sector employees. But is that the right tone to say, I'm up here like Santa Claus. I'm just, I'm making it rain. Meanwhile, teachers are on the picket line saying it's not right and it's not fair that the government brings in a legislated wage cap. I mean, how do you go to negotiations? How are you negotiating in good faith if when you go into negotiation to the negotiation table, we say, well, I got a law that says this is the most you can get. How does that work? And, and I've said this before, and I will say it again. This is designed by the government to put unions on the wrong foot. 
so that when they go into negotiations and they say, well, this is not acceptable, this 1% wage freeze that only 1% uh, more in terms of salary increase for public sector workers, well, then the government can say, well, all you care about is the cash. It's just all about the cash. And then we go back and forth with this sort of battle over the hearts and minds of parents out there. And what do you think? What should you be doing with the cash that the government is handing out? Up to 60 bucks a day per child. Well, before you start thinking about what you're going to do with the money, what are you going to do with your kids? Well, at the Science Center, it's lousy with kids today, the Ontario Science Center, because it has got some special programming today for the strike, and there will be more tomorrow. Here is Christina Hotz from the Science Center. Well, our goal is always to offer some sort of programming when schools are closed, so we offer March, summer, and holiday camps. So with the school closures, the rolling school closures, our goal is to try to offer a day camp each day that they're closed in the TDSB and TCDSB catchment area. So we will be offering camp tomorrow, and we have spaces available for tomorrow for parents who need them. There are spaces available, but hurry up and get a hold of the Science Center to sign up because it fills up and often fills up right around this time, right around noon hour. Let's get to Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, saying that teacher unions need to be more flexible. To recognize that these strikes are actually having a real impact on kids and their families, fiscally for their parents trying to find childcare with five days' notice or you know weeks' notice, which is difficult at the best of times in the GTA. And then the second point is, you know, just that we all have to be reasonable. So be reasonable. But meanwhile, we have this sort of back and forth about who's doing what at the bargaining table. Both sides are saying, well, nobody is compromising. And here again is Stephen Lecce with the government's perspective saying, well, unions, you need to budge. We have not seen a single example, a substantive move by the unions on their part. All they've done is entrench their position and demonstrate that they're going to keep doing these one-day strikes if they don't get their way in their demands, be it on compensation or any other policy. And I think for parents out there, I, I understand their frustration, and I'm trying to channel that energy to focus on getting deals. Okay, so that's the Minister of Education. Now, do you believe the minister, or do you believe Sam Hammond from the Elementary Teachers Federation? Here's Mr. Hammond saying essentially the opposite. We feel that we have absolutely no other option. Uh, we went f- uh, from the end of August until December the 19th with no meaningful engaged parties on the other side. Uh, and the government representative on the 19th said that he has no mandate or authority to bargain issues. 30 days ago, we started looking for dates, new dates, uh, with a new mandate, and the government has not responded. Well, you're not bargaining. Well, you're no, you're not bargaining. Well, you're not. Well, no, you aren't. Jamie Marocker is a Global News reporter who's covering this for us today and has been out on the picket lines talking to teachers. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Alan. So the perspective from teachers on the teacher side is that the government will not budge. Yeah, and now they're out here in the frigid cold having to walk back and forth and not get paid their full salary. So um, not only... Today, our parents having to find daycare. Parents um, are also bringing their kids to the picket lines because many teachers are parents themselves. So um, it's been a strange day on the pickets, especially with this frigid cold weather. Let's talk about the cash offer from the government. And here again is Sam Hammond with his perspective on what the government is trying to do. 
This minister had a critical decision to make. Was he going to call uh, our mediator and set dates to actually bargain on behalf of students and parents, or was he going to take the steps he did and he chose the latter? And I find that completely insulting to parents. Uh, I've said from the beginning, it's nothing more than a bribe to get parents on their side. Jamie, are you hearing that from individual teachers as well? Yeah, absolutely. They're insulted that... um the Minister of Education would be offering the $65 a day versus putting that towards uh, bargaining, especially when it adds up. If they go through these rolling strikes through the rest of the week, we're talking about millions of dollars because there are so many parents who are affected. You have to remember there's 83,000 members that are going to be participating in these rolling strikes. And so the effects are far reaching. Now, the boards say that they're trying to mitigate that by doing it boards at a time, not all clumped together over one day. So for today's example, we saw York Region, Ottawa Carleton, as well as Toronto District School Board. Tomorrow, that shifts to force for other boards. Um, And that's kind of how it will continue throughout the week. But at this point, it's become... Uh, basically this massive he said she said getting the details of the numbers from not we're not just talking about edfo here we're talking about four different teachers unions who are now poised to strike so i mean it's become he said she said nobody can get a straight answer of what's really taking place at the bargaining tables and you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit earlier alan when you were talking about um, the compensation, that 1% versus 2%, and that bill that's in place that basically has allowed the Ford government to stand their ground at this 1%. Now, on the flip side of that, Ontario teachers on average, according to the ministry, make around $86,000 a year, and that is the second highest in the country next to Alberta, which is 89000 All right, Jamie Marocker, who is covering this for us for Global News, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Now, we have seen a number of Facebook groups and groups saying that what uh, parents should do is they should apply for that money. And again, it's on a sliding scale. If your kid isn't in school but needs daycare, is under the age of six, you can get up to 60 bucks per kid. But it's more likely going to be about 25 bucks if you have a student under the age of 12. Now, if you have that money, you get that money, what should you do with it? Well, some parents' groups are saying that what you should do is you should just t- put that in a gift card and hand it to a teacher. Just give it right back to a teacher because... Because, after all, it really is coming from their wages. They're not getting paid today, so maybe you should just give it right back to them. Welcome back to the program. We're going to talk Meghan and Harry in just a moment. I'm going to play some very interesting clips from what Prince Harry had to say yesterday about all of this as the royal couple step back and now are going to make a life for themselves, apparently, on the west coast of Canada, what all of that means straight ahead. But it is strike day, and if you have kids in the system, you are entitled to money. The provincial government has set aside up to $48 million a day to help parents with child care costs. It won't be that much for today. That $48 million is budgeted in case all of the unions go out all at the same time. We only have selected strikes today by ETFO, and then we have strike again by OSSTF tomorrow and also on different areas of the province for ETFO. Now, you can get up to 60 bucks per child 
That's the maximum you can get. And there are some parent groups that are saying what you should do with that money is you just turn around, put that in a gift card, and hand it right back to teachers. Because, after all, it is their wages. They are not getting paid today, so that money should go back to them if you believe that the teachers and the teachers' unions are right. I want to get your perspective on all of that. Let's go to Tim, who's on the line. Tim, you are a teacher. What's your perspective on all of this? Hello, yeah, Tim. I would just take that. Hello. Go ahead. Um, to be honest, I would take that money and hand it off to uh, my own personal, my kids' EAs. Um, I walked today. I was out in Pickett Line. It was a nice, uh, chilly morning. But I was out for special ed. Um, I'm not marching for my salary. I'm marching for the cuts that I've seen happen. I'm, you know, about 17 years in now. And I've watched the special ed cuts get cut down to the point where I, I marched right next to a gifted teacher, beautiful teacher. And she's been assaulted twice in the last two years because kids in her room are feeling so academically behind that they're striking out. And I just, that's why I was marching. I'm not marching for salary. So I would give it back to the ES. See, now, Tim, the, the government says that this is all about money, that this is all about the union trying to strengthen their membership, and when you start talking about things like e-learning, it's all about trying to keep more teachers employed and more members in the union. Your response to that? Well, I think that uh, Lecce is a gifted speaker who doesn't say everything. If you listen to him very closely this morning, Atfo was at the bargaining table, or at least willing to be at the bargaining table this weekend. Mr. Lecce, uh, multiple times this morning, said what the the mediator said that they shouldn't be meeting. Why weren't they meeting? So he's a gifted speaker. He has a very clear and silver tongue. But if you pay real close attention to what he said this morning, they just weren't there. Um, he, He talks about mediating and getting together and meeting. But there are days where they said, we need to get back to the bargaining table, where they haven't been at the bargaining table for days and weeks. It's one of those things where most people right now who are in the education system who are dealing with incredibly ballooning class sizes, we're talking 35, 40, uh, we're talking some high schools that are even more than that, kindergarten rooms that occasionally just explode. Most of us are out there right now just trying to do the absolute best job we can. And you know what? Would I like a raise? Everybody would like a raise. No one's going to say, no, I don't want more money. But at the same time, if you told me right now, I have a choice between more money and more money going to special ed. I got three wonderful children, my personal kids who are in special ed. And without their EAs in the, over the past 10 years, they would have floundered and failed. All right, Tim, I, I appreciate your call. That is Tim, who is a teacher who was out on the picket lines today, saying that uh, the the money that he's entitled to for his own kids' daycare, he would rather see that go to EAs. I have time for one more quick call. Here's Bob. Bob, if you get the money from the government, would you give it, would you on-pass that to the teachers? Heck no. I'm paying my taxes. I'm already more money out of my pocket now for daycare. These teachers should not get a single dime. They're not in their class. They're not teaching. No work. Are they entitled to a cost of living allowance? Should their wages go up tied to uh, the cost of of living? Everyone's entitled should be getting raises, but if everybody else in the world only gets like half a percent raise, teachers shouldn't get 2%. They should get half a percent. 
just like everybody else. All right, Bob, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. A little bit of perspective there. Uh, I want to move on to what's going on in the royal family, because this is so fascinating. Prince Harry breaking his silence in a speech talking about his and his wife's decision to step back from the royal family. Here's a clip of what Harry had to say. Our hope was to continue serving the Queen, the Commonwealth, and my military associations, but without public funding. Unfortunately, that wasn't possible. I've accepted this, knowing that it doesn't change who I am or how committed I am. That is Prince Harry speaking. Dr. Sarah Cabos is a lecturer at the University of British Columbia, is an expert on the royals, and joins me on the line. Hi, Doc. Good morning. What do you make of what Harry had to say? Well, I think that um, I think he is noticing now that there are a lot of conditions to his desire to step back and that it is not possible to kind of step back partially. And I think that for him, not being able to participate in the military or wear his uniform again to formal occasions is um, going to be difficult. Here is Harry again talking about that this decision was reached with quote-unquote great sadness. It brings me great sadness that it has come to this. The decision that I have made for my wife and I to step back is not one I made lightly. The decision that he made, I found that interesting, he made that decision for himself and his wife. What do you make of that? Well, I think that he wants to make sure that um, he accepts responsibility for the decision and that he is not blaming other people, whether it is the royal family or whether it's because I think those are the kinds of conversations often seen in the media that other people are being blamed. Often the whole, uh, what I call the Yoko Ono effect, that Meghan Markle is being blamed for breaking up the band. I know, I've seen that. I think that um, I think that it's a very complicated situation, and I think Prince Harry has for many years felt a lot of pressure from the media, um, really from a very young age, and he has spoken many times of the fact that he associated media attention with his mother's difficulties in life and, of course, with her tragic death. And I think it kind of came to a head over the last few years when there was so much more attention paid to him when he married uh, Meghan Markle. And she is um, a, a, a new factor in the family, um, very different from previous royal brides. And I think there were a lot of things that, that then crystallized the media attention in ways that he was uncomfortable. What I often wonder about is there's all this talk about stepping back and splitting their time, and they're going to have a, apparently some kind of home on, on the West Coast, which I I love British Columbia. I, I wish I could retire there as well. But, I mean, why do we believe for a second that there will be less scrutiny on the couple just because they have stepped back from royal duties? Well, I think for him... Uh, there was an expectation that once he had stepped back from royal duties, he was not going to be part of the royal rota, and that had been his focus, I think, for a while. And the royal rota is a, a segment of media, uh, British media especially, that are given access to the royal schedule, so they go and cover various royal events uh, in a kind of approved and managed way. And he was thinking of that, but I think that all of um, these changes that are happening are going to bring a different sort of media 
to towards him and it might not be exactly what he had anticipated at the same time i think that um if they are not as public in um announcing where they're going what kinds of events they're doing all the time perhaps they will be able to step back a little bit from the media attention in the in the next while once this first bit of news is over How long until we see them fully embrace a kind of an Instagrammer influencer lifestyle where I'm going to be able to go out and buy a Prince Harry body wash? I think that that's going to take a little bit of time because they're still working on the Instagram account. Um, They're still working on a website. They're still trying to get approval for the subject's royal brand name, and they may have to drop the royal from that brand name. Um, and so it's going to take a little bit of time, I think, to work out what is possible, what is not. Um, the, this whole situation is going to be under review for another year. There's going to be a new kind of review in a year. So it's really hard to know what's going to actually work out. Sarah Cabos is a lecturer at UBC and an expert in all things royal. Thank you so much for being on the program. You're welcome. Thank you. Welcome back to the program. I'm just checking my email and news just coming in from the Ministry of Education. Uh, The Education Department uh, now sharing these new numbers 139,000 applications have now been received for the money that's going to parents to help offset the cost of daycare. 139,749 to be specific, and of course that money is budgeted as up to $48 million a day. You can get up to 60 bucks per kid. That's if your children are in daycare. It's a sliding scale, then comes down for kids as they get older. Most will get about 25 bucks a day, and we've been asking today whether or not you will do what some parents' groups are urging, and that is just on pass that money in a gift card to the teachers. Because after all, they are not getting paid today as they are out on the, the strike, they are out on the bricks. Would you pass that money along? How are you feeling today? Are you blue? You've likely heard already that today is supposedly Blue Monday. Then not this great New Order track from the 80s. Love this one. It's a hoax. It's just something that's invented. And the thing is, it, let me read you this. This is the CBC story today about it. CBC.ca has this. Quote, There is no scientific proof to suggest that Blue Monday is real. The third Monday in January is commonly considered the saddest day of the year, but some experts say it isn't actually more depressing than any other day of the month. But while there's no scientific proof behind it, Dr. Stacey Thomas says the day can be linked to the time of the year when people feel low because of dreary weather, and it's a good reminder to get people talking about mental health. So in other words... The thing's not real, but we keep just pumping it out there every year, year after year. It's on the newscast. It's going to be on our newscast tonight on Global News. And I think to myself, why are we doing this? We, it's like, it was, this, the following story is not real. Nevertheless, we're going to tell you about it anyway. 
And then here's where you start to see what's coming our way. Have you checked the Blue Monday sales? Yeah, travel agencies are out there everywhere. Oh, here, here's a deal to help you with your Blue Monday. It's only going to be a matter of time before this becomes the new Black Friday, the new Singles Day. You know, it's another one of these, uh, we're going to have to buy Hallmark cards for each other on Blue Monday. It's just another way to get us to part with our cash. That's what it is. It's a marketing deal. So if you want to feel depressed today, feel depressed that you're being marketed to every second of the day, every moment. Just enjoy a nice blue sky Monday. It's not a blue Monday. Not unless you're listening to New Order. Then how does it feel to treat me? the way you do. Here's something else that I found a little odd, a little depressing today. Cue this up. Hit me with a number 11. Number 11 on your on your scorecard. Thank you. Come again. Thank you. Come again. That, of course, is the sound of Apu. Hank Azaria, the actor who voices that character on The Simpsons, says he has no plans to continue voicing the character of Apu. But that isn't to say that the Indian immigrant convenience store owner won't live on. Producers and Fox Broadcasting would not confirm that Azaria will exit or end Apu, but say that they are going to rethink it. The actor, who is white, indicated Friday that there was no resistance to phasing out his voice. Azaria saying, we made the decision together. We feel that it's a good decision of course, Apu runs the Quickie Mart. Hit me with Apu one more time. Thank you. Come again. If you're a lover of The Simpsons and you've loved it for decades, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a second, how come this has been around forever, but just now we're saying, well, this is, I mean, this is what happens in the world, is our perspectives change. I'll tell you what, you go back and watch a Love Boat episode from the 80s, and you'll find all kinds of things to cringe about. I mean, we're just, I was just talking to my wife yesterday about you know Sex and the City, you know, it, what a groundbreaking, uh, innovative program that was when it first came out. You try watching it now, and you'd be like, me, if you put that on TV today, it's got some pretty big blind spots on it. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. That's pers- no truth handler, you. <laughs> bah, I deride your truth handling abilities. See, Kelsey Grammer can still be on. Sideshow Bob. It's going to only be a matter of time before, you know, people with curly hair or, you know, those that step on rakes will be upset. And, oh, that, oh, and that'll be somebody gone. Somebody please think of the children. <laughs> one last one here on Blue Monday where we just seem to have gone completely crazy sometimes. Have you seen this incident at the Australian Open where a French tennis player asks the ball girl to peel his banana? So she, what he asks, he said, can you bring me a banana? Because he's having a snack, you know, as you do mid, mid-match. It's in the middle of the match. And this young woman comes over and he says, can you peel that banana for me? And the umpire gets in there and says, you can't do that. And now everyone is outraged because peel your banana. I don't know what that is in French, but if you say, you just can't, you just can't say to somebody, you want to peel my banana? You can't, man, we are quick to get upset these days. 
All right, stay with us. We are back in a moment. When we come back, we are going to be talking about what's going on in China with this new virus and how concerned we should be about that. But first, let's check traffic with Richard Martin. Welcome back to the program. Watching the developments in British Columbia right now, the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou has now arrived at the British Columbia courthouse for the first day of her extradition hearing. Wanzhou was arrested in December of 2018, and China has repeated its call for Canada to release Meng Wanzhou ahead of her expected arrival in the courtroom. And I can tell you that as she walked into the courtroom today, clearly visible around her ankle was her uh, bracelet, the uh, the anklet, rather, the monitoring device. Uh, when Meng Wangzhu is on bail, of course, awaiting this extradition hearing. And of course, I think it's important that we point out that two Canadians who are being held in China are not on bail. They are not living in a luxury home. They are not sporting designer fashions and, you know, nice shoes and an ankle bracelet or an anklet to monitor where they are. They don't have that kind of thing. So hopefully we can get to some kind of resolution and get those Canadians released. Also, big news out of China this morning, and this news is very frightening for a lot of people. The head of a Chinese government expert team now saying that human-to-human transmission has been confirmed in an outbreak of a new coronavirus. And a number of airports around the world, including three here in Canada, have now begun screening incoming airline passengers from central China as the number of confirmed cases of this mysterious coronavirus has now surpassed 200. Here is more from that about the U.S. Center for Disease Control, who has now dispatched screeners to airports. The CDC sending about 100 employees to JFK, LAX, and SFO to take temperatures and check for symptoms of the coronavirus, which can at first look like the common cold, flu, or even pneumonia. Reports say some patients may be linked to a large seafood market in China, suggesting that in at least some cases, the virus may have spread from animals to humans, though the CDC says contracting viruses from animals is rare. Now, there have been reported cases in South Korea, Thailand, and Japan, all involving people who had recently traveled from China. And obviously, we know a thing or two about this kind of outbreak here in Toronto with our experience with SARS. Is this like SARS? Should we be worried more about this? And how much screening do we need to do at our airports from anybody who has recently traveled to central China? To get some answers to these questions, I am joined by Dr. Barry Pecus, who is the assistant professor at the School of Public Health and joins me on the line. Hello, doctor. Hello. Let's begin with what is a coronavirus. So a coronavirus is a type of uh, virus, obviously, that can cause respiratory or or uh, um, symptoms as are described by uh, a virus that causes uh, fever and cough, and, and it actually can cause a whole host of other different symptoms in different animals. Um, and it is similar, as you mentioned, to the SARS virus that we had back in 2003. Um, and we're, we're following developments as they, 
as they come out uh, as you are. And I think one of the great things about this, not not to not to be too flippant, one of the great things about what's going on now is the dramatically increased amount of information and sharing that we've got around the globe. Um, one of the big differences um, you, know, you mentioned is this similar to SARS or, or isn't it? You know, it, as a virus, it might be similar to SARS, but uh, the world is very different now. On the one hand, much more connected, but on the other hand, there's a lot more preparedness and a lot more openness and communication about this disease. Please put this uh, announcement into perspective for me that the head of a government, a Chinese government team says that human to human transmission has now been confirmed. Right. So um, with any infectious disease, um, how it's transmitted is really the critical element in, in dealing with it from a public health uh, perspective, and um, there are you know there are a number of worrisome viruses um, like Ebola, for example, and, and and several others that are you know primarily zoonotic or primarily from animals, and then once they um, are, are able to transmit um, between humans, we're obviously a lot more concerned. Now, SARS. Uh, was able to be transmitted between humans, but it was it was not a virus that was easily transmitted, as opposed to things like your regular old cold virus, which can be easily transmitted. Uh, things like influenza is is airborne, as opposed to more difficult to transmit. So with SARS, uh, while it was transmitted person to person, it, it it was really mostly in hospitals or mostly very close and prolonged. Um, uh, contact with a person. And, and what we saw just now in China, they said, yes, there has been human to human. Uh, and we suspected that all along. But what they, what we've also known is that it's not easily transmitted between humans. And that is a really important distinction. Does it have a name beyond coronavirus? Uh, for the time being, uh, it seems we're calling it a Wuhan no- novel coronavirus. Um, and you know, oftentimes uh, where 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 a virus is first identified is is uh, is how we identify it, and and that name seems to be sticking for now. And, and do we know that it originated in livestock or animals and has made the jump to humans? I don't think we know that for a hundred percent certainty, and that that is certainly what uh, what they're they're thinking. And you know, e- even after SARS, you know, it's been. Uh, 17 years. We're not 100% sure. We think it did originate in civets, but we're not 100% uh, sure. And that that kind of research and work is is ongoing. Uh, the really important thing is how it's transmitted and how readily it's transmitted. In other words, how much contact um, do you have to have with a person? So it goes all the way from it's really difficult to transmit unless you have you know sex with a person or share you know needles, all the way to you know something like measles, where even if someone is not even in the room anymore. The measles is hanging around in the air, and you can actually get infected. Um, and where where this novel coronavirus seems to be is closer to SARS, which is yes, it can be transmitted between people, uh, but but you need quite a bit more uh, and close contact in order to do that. And that's really developing uh, over time. So then, what is different then between what happened with SARS and their sort of established a beachhead? SARS established a beachhead here in Toronto and spread. It, you're saying that that is unlikely to happen again? Oh, well, no, I'm not saying that it's unlikely, but I've, what I am saying is our, our degree of preparedness is different. So when you, when you look at SARS, the first, uh, you know, the first suggestions of it came out in, in February uh, of that year on ProMed, which is this um, uh, email service that all infectious disease and public health people are on. And, you know, it, there were sort of inklings of it over time, and then it, it, it spread, and we were sort of, you know, unsure about who to trust about information, and 
and and uh, and we didn't have public health Ontario in Ontario. We didn't have the public health agency of Canada. Uh, and since then, we've had the you know H one N one in two thousand and nine. And so the really big difference is how prepared we are and how um, good international communication is around this. Now, I think it's important to mention that a lot of the things like Public Health Ontario and the Public Health Agency of Canada that, that came out of SARS, um, you know, o- over time we, we forget um, how important those things are and how, how important additional capacity is there in order to respond to events like this. Uh, and especially with some of the changes in public health in Ontario, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a program director of a residency program at the University of Toronto, and and our faculty and our um, our our trainees, our physician trainees, are certainly uh, concerned, as is everyone, with some of the um, perception that a lot of what public health is doing is not frontline. Well, it's it's it is frontline, and and you only realize it's important when when it's not there. So, no, those are some of the differences. I don't think Canadians need to be worried right now. Um, there are there are you know really competent uh, organizations and people who are watching out and uh, and are communicating really well with with the public generally uh, to let you know to let people know what they need to do if anything in response to this virus. Uh, you likely heard in my preamble talking about a number of airports that now have begun screening incoming airline passengers. What would that look like, and would the average traveler see or or sense anything different? Well, so there, there's a different ways that, that screening can be done, um, all the way from, you know, asking people whether they're having symptoms to not letting in people from certain places. And, and some, you know, something that's being done in South Korea, for example, which is monitoring the temperature of individuals coming through and anybody with a fever is being sort of screened out. We have reasonable evidence that that doesn't really work very well. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not the person, it, some of that evidence is actually from uh, Toronto uh, and some of the researchers here. I'm not one of those people who's involved in that research in particular, but um, you know, there, it seems that there's two reasons for screening you've done. One, because if there's a medical necessity and evidence that it, it's, it works, and another reason is to sort of placate people. Uh, and you know, if the public is worried about people coming from these places, we can at least say, oh yeah, they've been screened. But the medical evidence behind uh, certainly screening people for a fever is is uh, is not excellent. Let's let's say that way. In, and in, in Canada, we're not doing that right now. We're asking whether people have come through um, a place that is you know currently known transmission of the virus, um, but we're not. And and we're asking people to identify if they have symptoms when they come in. But we're not doing what, like I said, in South Korea, they're doing checking for temperature or. Um, in some places in the U.S., they're actually, ask, you know, actively asking people, "Do you have cold-like symptoms?" Uh, we're not doing that quite yet. And then, if you say yes to those things, yes, you've been to this area, yes, you have a fever, and like I understand, you're saying we're not actually doing that at Canadian airports at this point. But if a person were to answer yes to both of those, is that strictly then right into quarantine? I don't believe so. So I'm I'm not working for the Public Health Agency of Canada now, and 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 uh, you know if someone does self-identify, and we are asking people to self-identify if you've got those symptoms and you're from one of those places, what's usually done is is they're sent for medical assessment. So in other words, they're you know they're uh, um, asked for either medical assessment on site, but I, most much uh, of the time they're brought to a nearby emergency department or a nearby facility that's designated for that. Dr. Barry Pecos is Assistant Professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.
So that's interesting. There's something else to worry about. You you want to worry about a Blue Monday? Why don't you worry about that? That's that's what you need to be worried about. And then there's this other story that I just want to quickly touch on here. The uh, Canadian Army commander, a lieutenant governor, a general now, is warning that calling in the military more and more because we have natural disasters means that the Army's ability to train for war is going to be impacted. The past few years have seen the military sent to help with disasters right across this nation, floods, wildfires, ice storms. An analysis by the Canadian press last year showed the military has been called to help with 10 weather-related disasters over the previous two years, as compared to 20 between 2007 and 2016. Of course, the rest of the country still giggles at us for calling in the Army for that big snowstorm here in Toronto. But when the disasters happen, they normally call in the military, and often the disasters happen in the spring and fall, which tends to be when the military is training. And it may not seem important during a time of peace, but the commander with the Canadian Army says that that training is essential. So essentially, we're not going to be ready in case we need the Army for a real shooting war because we're too busy battling fires. But what is it that the Army should be doing? Should the Army be helping in times of national crisis? Or should it be out there training for something that has not happened and may never happen? Interesting perspective there. Thank you again for spending some time with me this hour. I'm back again tomorrow at noon and on TV tonight, beginning at 5.30 with my co-anchor Farah Nasser. And that that program is simulcast on this radio station beginning at 6. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you again tomorrow at noon.